Section One of Stories from the Detectives Album. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsty. Stories from the Detectives Album by Wife Wonder, also known as Mary Fortune. The Window Among the Willows. I was going down Swanston Street the other day in rather a meditative mood when I fell in with two of my mates, whose names it is unnecessary to particularise, for two very good reasons. One of them being that not one out of five hundred readers of this journal cares a jot about either detectives or their appellations, and the other that the odd few who do care can easily pick out the individuals from the conversation I am about to record. Hello, here he is himself, cried a small dark chap with a jockey-like appearance about him and his sentiments were echoed by a fair customer with the air of an exquisite and a drawl the very man which showed that i had been forming the topic of conversation between them at no distant date well is there anything wonderful in that fact i growled sulkily for i'm a suspicious-minded individual and i could see that the gentleman had something disagreeable to say that is to say something they thought would be disagreeable to me and that they consequently enjoyed in anticipation oh no only we happen to have a little argument about you just now is it true that you have sent in your resignation sinclair quite true i replied was it about that fact you were arguing no it was about the reasons of your doing it some of the chaps say that you didn't resign at all said the free and easy looking little jockey chap i may as well call connell but that you were uh sacked in short put in the exquisite with an inane grin that he meant as a smile to show some fearful big teeth of which he is notoriously proud god help him it's not true is it persisted connell what isn't true i asked that you got the ah uh, that you are recommended to send in your resignation will you kindly inform me gentlemen i inquired with my grandest air what i was supposed to have got what long jaws there elegantly terms the sack oh put in connell quickly for he saw i was getting riled nothing to your discredit sinclair only you know they found out that you are the chap that's writing the d stories for a certain journal and you know it's against the rules of the service policemen are not allowed to have anything to do with the press policemen be blowed said i emphatically and i'm blessed glad i'm nearly done with it and now to satisfy your kindly curiosity of course all on my behalf let me inform you that I have not got the sack, that I resign entirely of my own behalf, and, to go a little further, as it will save me advertising, I'll tell you what I'm resigning for. I'm resigning because I'm quite independent, and because I think it's high time for me to try and get into decent society. Oh, bother, said, after all, good-natured Connell. Don't be so sarcastic, Mark. I'm sure we all wish you well. But we're not aristocratic enough for him, sneered the man with the teeth as he wrapped his left arm with his short cane and turned his ring finger out as he was doing it the fact of it is connell that sinclair is afraid he'll lose his laurels we're getting too literary for him he doesn't like opposition on his own benches if yours is a specimen of the ability in opposition to me i said turning round on him sharply little wonder i'd be afraid of it but let me advise you to shut your big mouth as far as i'm concerned for I know a grand receipt for wearing down big teeth, and that is, to set em chewing words. 
and by George I'll make you eat yours, aye, and swallow them, if I hear them in any way reflecting on either me or my business. Connell, I wish you'd drop down to my place this evening. I want to speak to you. You see how tetchy I'm getting in my old days, but I was always a little inclined that way. In this case I had, however, a reasonable excuse. This exquisite, you will know as Slayton, had been a perfect nuisance to me ever since he, by some not-to-be-understood means, got into the force. His small mind was capable of little else than an idea of his own unapproachable personal appearance and the extraordinary value it gave him in the eyes of the fair and foolish sex. But the little else it was capable of seemed to be a jealousy of my superior position in the service, and any success I might have had as a contributor to the detective's album. He lost no occasion of trying to sneer at me, and being so stupid as to be nearly impenetrable, he never knew when he was insulted, and so went on his way rejoicing however matters might end. However, I was vexed at myself for having permitted my temper to get the better of me on this occasion, not on his account, but on Connell's. I needed his advice or assistance, as it happened, and was afraid he might have taken offence enough not to come, as I had requested him on leaving abruptly. Connell did come, however, but before I go any farther, I had better tell you what the affair I had in hand was. My private residence at the time I speak of, which is not very long ago, after all, was a suburban cottage in which my bedroom was at a back corner, with one window looking into a little plot of garden, and the other, at right angles with it, toward the yard. From both of these windows combined I had, if I so wished, an excellent opportunity of watching the doings of a goodly number of my neighbours. But as curiosity is not my failing, they might have been all dead without my being one bit the wiser, unless, indeed, there had been something wrong about the manner of decease when I might have been called on professionally. But as I lay in bed there was one tenement that forced itself on me, as it were, since it loomed up to three stories in height within about sixty yards of me, and had a splendid willow-tree growing and flourishing so beautifully close to its back windows, that I could not look out without being attracted by the greenery and gracefulness of the said willow. I used to lie and watch that tree on a breezy morning or evening with inexpressible delight, and with greater still when a strong wind tossed its pendant branches about in wild confusion. Then it was that I was so reminded of Swinburne's, as the wings and tresses of the wind are scattered and shaken, as well as began to take an interest in the only window that I could see among the quiescent branches, and that was hidden or exposed alternately, when the tresses of the wind were scattered and shaken. This window was on the second story, and had a green Venetian blind on the inside. As I said before, it would, in all probability, have remained unnoticed by me only for the big willow tree, but once my attention was drawn to it, it was kept there by several unusual circumstances. In the first place, the Venetian blind was sometimes drawn up to the very top, and sometimes half-mast high only. Then again, it would remain down altogether for days together. I observed, too, that the window was never clear or bright-looking, and hence concluded that the room was not occupied by a person of particular habits. Beginning to think more about this window than was good for me, I got to lying awake at nights to watch if its light made its appearance at abnormal hours. The movements of the light were the same as those of the blind, erratic. It would, at times, shine in dim lines through the lowered Venetians, and sometimes, when all was darkness and at midnight, the light would appear at the as suddenly uncovered window 
and only remained long enough to be seen ere it was again extinguished. In short, a perfect code of signals appeared to be established with that light and that blind. Well, when Connell came that evening, I told him all I have told you, and he said, Of course they're signals, and I'm sure you didn't leave it at that. I should say, from the look of the window, it was a servant's room, and, of course, she's making signals to her bloke. Don't be so coarse, I said. It's nothing of the kind. I found out that the house is a sort of private boarding place, and the room is one of Dr. Annan's. What? That disreputable old villain! There you are again. The man drinks more than is good for him, I suppose, but no one denies his ability in his profession. Now, Sinclair, what is the use of talking like that just out of simple contradiction? You know well that he's been in some dirty cases that would have been bad for him, only he managed to wriggle out of them somehow. If he's in the room, you may depend there's some devilment abroad. But I'd like to know one thing. What are you getting me into it for? You used to be rather over-fond of working out your own cases single-handed. Well, I'll tell you the plain fact. If I enter on this, it will drag me into the thing again, and I don't want it. I expect my discharge now in a few days, and I don't want to get into any fresh cases if I can help it. Oh, you want to shake the dust off your feet at once and cut the connection entirely. Well, all right. I'll do anything you think best. But have you found out who Annan's making these signals to? No, we don't know if it's Annan at all, confound you. And without going up to the window, we cannot be certain what windows are within view of it. You see, that tree is so abominably in the way. The tree is delightful. I could climb up that tree and see in that window with the greatest ease in life, and I'll do it too. Why, the top of the wall is right under it. Sindo may live, Mark. "'but you're getting too old for a debt, "'or you would have been up in that tree before now. "'But, at all events, now I'll tell you what I'll do. "'I'll stop here with you all night "'and have a look at old Annan's window, "'and I only hope I'll catch him at something "'that will hang him, for he richly deserves it. "'Come on and have a stroll, Connell,' said I. "'There's an old friend of mine a bit up the road there "'that I make a point to inquire for every night. "'We used to have pleasant evenings before he was laid up. I think he is one of the best chess players I ever played with. What's the matter with him? asked Connell, as he lit a cigar when we were fairly out of my gate. None of the doctors can tell. They've had seven or eight, but it seems that the symptoms baffle them all, being something quite out of the common line. They ought to have it Annan, Connell remarked, with a laugh. He'd settle it in five minutes. He has attended Mr. Leland, I replied, but was quite as puzzled as the rest. Leland? Did you say Leland? Yes, that's my friend's name. Poor old man, I fear our last game of chess is played. Is there a place called Edenthorpe Cottage? Yes. Why? Why, that's the identical place where Slayton is hanging up his hat. There's an only daughter there, isn't there? And she's bound to have the old chap's sugar, eh? Of all the fellows to talk slang, Connell, I'll give the palm to you, I replied. But indeed, in this instance, you're wrong. Minnie Leland is scarcely more than a child. Why, I don't believe she's sixteen. At all events, she's old enough to fancy herself spooning on Slayton. I tell you it's true. You needn't be opening your eyes at me that way. I thought you knew Slayton better than to believe half of what he says, was my remark. And I can tell you he's been lying in this instance. It would be impossible for Slayton to be visiting there without me knowing it. Leland would tell me at once, especially as the fellow is one of us. How can the man tell you when he doesn't know himself? They're doing it on the sly. Slayton did speak to the old man some time ago, I believe. 
but he was dead set against him, and now he's made it all right with the girl. They're to be married as soon as the governor croaks. It was useless to try and keep Connell off the slang. Besides, I was too deeply cut up to try. I knew that Paul Elland was deeply anxious about his girl, but that he had the fullest belief in her innocence and obedience. What a blow this would be to him in his last hours should I feel it my duty to disclose it. Connell read my thoughts pretty well, for before I had time to think, he burst out with, "'Look here now, Sinclair. If you go splitting on me about this, I'll never forgive you. See what a row you'll get me into with Slayton, and hang it, no decent chap would go splitting on a mate. No decent chap would have a mate who could be guilty of such dirty action as you tell me Slayton's planning. To take advantage of a poor, silly, motherless child, with no one to watch over her save a dying father, is a vile act.' "'Oh, well,' cried my excitable mate, as he tossed away the remains of his cigar. "'I'm sorry I spoke at all. But you'll get me no farther into it, I'll tell you. And so, so long.' And without more to do, he turned on his heel and left me to manage my own affairs as pleased myself. We were just in front of Leland's cottage as I stood and looked after Connell, with some intention of calling him back and promising not to tell about Slayton. But, remembering poor Leland's illness and helplessness, and the perfect trust I was aware he had in me, I felt I should be doing both him and the girl a grievous wrong by making any such promise, and so I stood and saw the last of Connell as he turned the corner just under my interesting willow tree, and then I noticed that from where I was the window among the branches was also visible. At the moment the fact made little impression on me, however, and I turned into the little garden and knocked at the door. It was opened by an elderly woman, who had been working housekeeper for Leland ever since his wife's death. She was a woman I had never liked, yet I had no reason for my down on her, save that she had a treacherous expression of countenance, and, at times, a disagreeable manner. She was called Mrs. Knox, and I understood her to be a widow, and a childless one. To my inquiries about her master, she replied that he was much better, and that he wished to see me when I called. Of course I went in, and found my old friend propped up in bed with pillows, and looking so ghastly that I believed the woman had lied in saying he was better. His own words, however, confirmed hers, as I pressed his thin hand in mine. "'I've been longing to see you, Sinclair,' he said. "'I'm so very much better that I feel able to discuss some matters I am anxious about with you. I shall cheat those rascally doctors yet.' He said it with a smile, but my heart sank for he looked like death as he said it. "'I hope so,' I replied. "'Which of them have you had to-day?' "'Dr. Annan. I hate that man,' he added with such energy that a faint flush appeared in his hollow cheeks. "'I know I should not feel so, but I almost fear I shall never forgive him his detestable proposal about a month ago.' "'What was that?' I asked. "'I didn't tell you, for the subject was so utterly hateful to me.' You know how long he has been attending in conjunction with T. Well, I requested that his bill might be made out, as he acknowledged he did not at all understand my case. He told me very coolly that the bill would be a heavy one, but that he would entirely forego payment if I would agree to a proposal he was about to make me. And that was? And that was that my body should be handed over to him for an investigation in what he was pleased to call the interests of medical science, after my death. Now, Sinclair, 
if there has been during all my life one thing i have had more horror of than i can explain it was the idea of a post-mortem the idea of being cut up by the careless knife of an unfeeling wretch who must one day become a corpse himself has something so horrible to me in it that i believe i should not lie in my grave if it were desecrated with my body being placed in it after being disgraced with the saw and scalpel he shuddered as he contemplated his own picture and looked so faint that i hastened to try and compose his mind if you had told me this long ago lalland i said i could have relieved your mind you may be sure that while i live no such fear need affect you thank god you are better but should anything happen in my time i promise to you that no rough hand shall touch your body i will see to that thank you my dear fellow i have been afraid to speak of the foolish feeling i thought you would laugh at me not i there are many who have the same feeling and don't care to acknowledge it i stopped a good while with my friend and among other things he told me that he had made a will some time previous and that he had appointed me one of the trustees as well as minnie's guardian during her minority that information decided me on leaving him in ignorance of the girl's folly for in any case i would be able to prevent slayton's plan from being a success as it happened however i met the girl herself entering the gate just as i was leaving it and determined not to lose the opportunity of giving her a hint minnie lelland was a pretty silly girl with the usual girl's opinion of herself yet a real affection for her father she ran to me at once and took my hand. "'How do you think Papa is to-night, Mr. Sinclair? He was so much better this morning that he wanted to get up. Only the doctor wouldn't hear of it.' "'He says himself he's much better, Minnie. But I don't think he is. I never saw him look so bad. But he's in excellent spirits. I'm glad I met you, as I have something very particular to say to you.' I dare say the girl read something accusing in my eyes, for her own fell and her face flushed up to her hat. "'Are you aware, Minnie, that your father has made me your guardian in the event of his death?' "'Yes. Pa told me,' she replied in a low voice, but without raising her eyes. "'Well, I didn't know until a little ago, and I'm glad he has told you, for I do not want to distress your poor father, for whom I have always had a sincere friendship, and who has been such a good father to you. Now that I know, and you know that I have some sort of right. I must warn you that you are doing a very foolish thing in keeping up any clandestine intercourse with Slayton. I never, I didn't. Now, don't tell a lie about it, Minnie, for it will do no good. I know all about it, and I'll put a stop to it. Slayton is quite unworthy of you, and wouldn't look at, much less speak to you, only that he thinks you will have money. He would throw you over tomorrow if he did not believe that your poor father's death would leave you well off. "'I think you wrong him, Mr. Sinclair,' she said, plucking up courage in defence of her own charms. "'I know I don't, Minnie, but now I've said all I have to say, and I can prove what I've said, unfortunately. For indeed, my girl, I am sorry to say your father's position, as regards money matters, is very far from being as comfortable a one as people fancy.' And then I went away and left her. I had only told the girl the truth about my poor friend's affairs. His long and strange illness had cost a small fortune, and he himself feared that when affairs were wound up there would be but a small provision for his child should he be taken away from her. 
I thought of it a good deal when I got home, and, between Lullan's affairs and my mate Connell's desertion, I was so upset that the idea of sleep was quite out of the question. It was a still and warm night, so I sat long at the open window of my room, until I saw the light make its appearance at that other window in which I was so much interested. All at once it struck me that I had noticed that window among the willows from Lelland's place, and goodness knows what idea came into my head to go out again and see if by any possibility there was any communication between my friend's and Dr. Annan's window. Some horrible recollection of what Lelland had told me about Annan's proposal put some thoughts into my head that kept there in spite of me, and I got up and put on my hat, determined to have a spy around on my own account, in default of Connell's help. I had smoked and read and thought away a few hours, and it was late when I slipped open my private door and gained the right of way at the back. As I neared Lelands, I heard the whistle of the last train just coming into the station, and to my astonishment, right under the street lamp, a man vaulted over the low garden fence and dashed down the lane like a madman, evidently on the run to catch the return train to town. I saw his face full in the light and recognised Slayton, so you may guess my annoyance at discovering that at such an hour he paid clandestine visits, doubtless to the silly child Minnie. I went round the premises, but not a chink of light was to be seen anywhere. Had it not been for the evidence of my own eyes, I might have believed that every inmate of the house was buried in the most profound and innocent repose. I had half a mind to seek an entrance at the instant, but when I remembered that much might depend on my poor friend's undisturbed rest, I turned my back and went home. The first thing I do in the morning is to tell Lelland, I thought. The girl is not to be trusted, but surely a decided command from her father, and he in a dying condition too, would have a decided effect. And so I went to bed at last, leaving still the light burning in that window up among the willows. As soon as I rose on the following morning, and without waiting for any breakfast, I went over again to Lelland's. I made my way round by the back, and was early enough to find the woman, Mrs. Knox, only just kindling the kitchen fire as I stood on the threshold. The first strange observation I made was that a lamp with a clear glass globe was burning close against the little window, and involuntarily I looked back toward the willow window to find it was really within view of Lelland's kitchen, and, of course, of the light in the window of it. Some little noise I made had attracted the woman, and as I turned toward her again, she had raised herself from the fire, and was making a grab at the lamp. "'You're an early visitor, sir,' she said, in no pleasant tones, and as if she resented the intrusion on her premises. "'Of course there's no one up yet but myself.' "'I came to see you especially, my good woman,' I said, "'and as soon as you put out that lamp, which you are burning at a very strange time, I'll trouble you to attend to me for a minute or two. "'I had a job with the fire this morning.' she observed sulkily, as she blew out the flames, and thought I wouldn't have a match left, so I lit the lamp. Ah, was it by any chance in here that Miss Minnie had the interview with a young man near midnight last night? She stared at me, and her face grew red and angry, but I'd give her a chance to say a word. I saw a man I am acquainted with jumping over that fence last night, and I'm quite certain that he couldn't have had an interview with your master's daughter unknown to you. I'm certain you're conniving at this, and I came here especially this morning to tell you that you ought to be ashamed of yourself, and you the only woman the girl has about her. 
I mean to tell my friend Lelan this morning all about it, and if it is as I suspect, I promise you that your place here will be empty before tonight. The woman's face grew red with anger, and if she had followed her inclination, she would doubtless have abused me soundly. As it was, she knew where her interests lay, and controlled herself. It would be very hard on me, sir, to put me out of work, of making an honest living. It's not my fault that Miss Minnie is headstrong and unbiddable. Besides, she is mistress here, and I am only the servant. I would not condescend to bandy words with the creature, and not wishing to disturb my poor friend so early, I turned on my heel and went out, and then I took it into my head to speak to Slayton himself. I had such a poor opinion of his character, as firmly believed that, the instant he believed the girl Minnie penniless, he would drop her, though it should break the silly girl's heart. So when I had transacted some necessary business of my own, I went into town. It was about ten o'clock when I reached the office, and the first man I encountered was Slayton himself. He looked at me rather strangely, and consciously, I thought. Of course, I concluded that Connell had confessed to having told on him. Slayton, I have a word to say to you, I said. All right, old fellow, he replied, with an attempt at his usual drawl. But he was evidently ill at ease. He was going to the city court, and I walked with him, beginning to say what I had to say at once, and without circumlocution. I have become aware of your conduct as regards Minnie Lelland, and saw you leaving the place last night at nearly midnight. Now, Slayton, my opinion of you is so poor that I believe if you were aware of the girl's position you would drop it at once. What position? he asked, turning round quickly and looking at me with uncommon sharpness for him. You fancy she will be her father's heiress at his death. So she will, but she will not inherit fifty pounds. Mr. Lelland is deeply involved in consequence of his long illness, and should he unhappily succumb to it, which there is, I am sorry to say, every probability that he will, there will not be more for the girl than will pay a premium for apprenticing her to some trade. How do you know all this so very particularly? he inquired with a sneer. You haven't by any chance a sneaking regard that way yourself. One more word in that style and I'll knock you down, I said between my teeth but I have an object to accomplish in giving you the information you asked for. I know all this because I have gone over Mr. Lelland's accounts with him, because I have seen his will, because I am appointed the girl's guardian and one of the trustees to the will. Slayton muttered an oath loud enough to attract the attention of the passers-by, and then, turning on his tracks, evidently to rid himself of me, he left me to go on my way alone. I had no duty on hand, and returned with the purpose of seeing how Lelland was. I went to his cottage straight, without waiting to go home, and entered by the back way with the double purpose of sparing my friend the noise of an application at the front door, and of seeing what Mrs. Knox was about. Picture to yourself my dismay and distress when I was met by the woman rushing out with a startling intelligence that Mr. Lelland was dead, and that his wretched daughter had disappeared from her house. Oh, Mr. Sinclair, when I went into the room with his tea this morning, he was dead, and Miss Minnie had never been in bed. She must have gone in the night. I went down to your place, sir, for I didn't know what to do, but you were not at home. Without a word I passed her, and entered the chamber of my lost friend. It was still darkened, as when he had closed his eyes in his last sleep. 
I had to draw up the blind before I could trace the outline of the faded form lying stilly in his bed. He lay like a sleeping child, one hand under his white, sunken cheek, and a contented smile on his thin lips. Thank God for that at least, I thought. If he had known of his miserable girl's folly, he would have died in bitterness of heart instead of with the pleasant smile of content and peace. I drew the sheet over the dead face and went out. Under the circumstances, I could not blame the woman Knox for not having interfered, but I immediately took all necessary steps, uneasy as I was about the unhappy child Minnie. Remembering my poor old friend's horror of his body being interfered with, I would not leave him until he lay in his coffin. When that was accomplished, I went away to search for the poor child, to look her last upon her father's dead face. And where should I search for her? Where, but by watching or threatening that villain Slayton? But fortune favoured me. I took a shortcut through the gardens, and, not sorry to have a quiet opportunity of thinking in the coolness and quiet, I sat down on a seat under a tree and filled my pipe. It was now evening, and pleasant shadows were lying on the grass under the great old trees, for ours is no highly cultivated and carefully tented gardens, but an enclosure from the original bush, with the young plantations bringing among the rough grass. I had not been many moments sitting there, when voices seemed nearing me, and I started to my feet, for I fancied I had recognised Slayton's drawl. Drawing back behind the bowl of the tree, I stood and listened. Presently, along the untended walk came two figures, Minnie Leland leaning on the arm of Slayton. Even as I looked, he stopped, and drawing his arm from the clinging clasp of the poor girl, assumed a sharp manner I had not deemed him capable of. "'Now, I've got something to say to you, Miss Leland,' he began, without the suspicion of a drawl. "'I've brought you out here where none of the women at that house could hear, and, besides, the landlady decidedly refuses to harbour you.' I could see the poor child's face grow white in the fading light as she stared at Slayton with eyes distended with horror. "'What do you mean, Charles? Oh, what are you saying?' "'I'll soon tell you what I mean. I mean you to go straight home to your dad again, and no blessed fuss about it. I've been most abominably taken in, miss. You led me to believe that you'd have a pot of money when your father died, and instead of that I understand he'll die a pauper.' Minnie's breath came in gasping sobs as she clasped her trembling hands and fell against the tree behind which I stood. "'You said—oh, Charles, you said we were to be married to-day.' "'It's a lucky job for me that we were not. Perhaps your friend Sinclair will take you in hand. And now, clear out.' The words were hardly out of his mouth when he was felled by a blow from my fist. "'Lie there, you cowardly villain,' I cried. "'And if you should never rise again, the world would be all the better of the loss, and then, taking Minnie by the arm, I led her sobbing home. For some time I let her shed her tears unrestrainedly, but at last, remembering how much greater cause she had to weep than she herself was aware of, I spoke to her. "'Minnie, stop crying,' I said. "'If you do not, you'll have no tears left to shed for a more bitter sorrow than the desertion of a scoundrel.' She dried her eyes and looked at me with terror. Doubtless a suspicion of the truth made the uncertainty terrible to her. "'Prepare yourself for a shock, girl,' I hastened to add. "'Your poor father lies in his coffin, and will never know how his child has disobeyed and dishonoured him.' Her wild outburst of remorse and grief at this intelligence was pitiful to witness, for, as I have said before, 
the unfortunate child really loved her father nor had she ceased to sob and cry when we reached her home no sooner had she however entered the house than the solemn silence that always seems to tell of the presence of death awed and silenced her and it was with great reluctance that she followed me to her father's room i however insisted upon her looking at the calm dead face as i thought the sight might have a better effect upon the silly girl's future than twenty sermons so leaving her kneeling by the coffin which lay upon chairs i closed the door behind me and went to see the undertaker in order to fulfil my promise to the dead i had determined to watch the body all night and even to have the coffin closed before dark i had got the doctor's certificate and taken every precaution but man does not dispose of the events he plans the full moon was just making her appearance as i hastened home for a snack and when i returned in say twenty minutes after i saw emerging from the gate in a hurried and disordered manner minnie leland it was impossible not to see that the girl was almost wild and full of some terrible purpose what that purpose was was only too evident as soon as she reached the road she turned down the path that led to the not distant yarra and with uncovered and dishevelled hair flew down the moonlit road like a hunted fawn as i sped after her the thought presented itself to my mind of that detestable woman knox having said something to drive the girl to distraction and i thought a day of reckoning would occur between her and me before long the thought did not lessen my speed but the girl's speed far outstripped mine once i gained so on her that i could hear her hard panting breath but as she doubtless also heard my pursuing footsteps and seemed to gain fresh strength for her flight she reached the river long before me and disappeared from my sight at that part of the yarra the banks are steep but worn into the descending paths by the feats of boys going to fish or bathe the water here lay in the shadow of the bank while in the centre of the stream patches of moonlight flickered on the moving water i peered all around the margin of the river but could see no moving object i listened but could hear no sound what could i do the poor girl could scarcely have flung herself from the bank without me hearing the sound and she might have darted to the left to escape me and seek a less steep part of the bank from which to take the fatal leap as i skirted the river in hopes of overtaking her ere it was too late i saw a little boat fastened to a stake on the bank with fortunately a pair of skulls lying in the bottom under the circumstances i felt no hesitation in making use of it and rode up and down until i had abandoned all hopes of saving the girl once i fancied i saw a floating garment but it was only a patch of moonlight among the rushes so there was nothing for it but to report the matter to the police and return to poor leland i did so and when i reached the cottage once more it was a late hour at night or rather an early one in the morning to my astonishment the place was in utter darkness and i had to grope my way into the kitchen and strike a match to examine into the state of matters fortunately the lamp to which i had such an objection was still standing in the window and lighting it i set to examining the premises there was no appearance of the woman knox anywhere even in the room where she had slept off the kitchen not a vestige of her clothing remained she had evidently cleared out for good for what reason it was easy to suspect she had either driven poor minnie to distraction and feared the consequences or was guilty of some other heinous offence the consequences of which she dreaded what other offence had she been guilty of carrying the lamp in my hand i went into the chamber of the dead my first glance rested on the coffin 
my next on some damp spots on the floor near it, which had evidently been lately scoured. What did this mean? My blood boiled as I feared that the circumstances had obliged me to be unfaithful to my promise to my dead friend. I had not been able to keep guard over his sacred remains. I was almost afraid to look into the coffin, dreading I knew not what. When I did raise the lamp over the dead face, I saw that it was covered with the linen face-cloth, just as it had been when I uncovered it for Minnie to see once more her father's face, and that everything around the corpse looked as I had left it. My professional instincts were not, however, to be deceived, and perhaps the old Highland superstitious training was, as I grew older, asserting itself. At all events, as I uncovered my dead friend's face, I saw that the peaceful smile with which he had stepped into death was gone, and that in its place was an expression of intense pain, as though of an agony too great for endurance. I flashed the light to and fro over the dead face in hopes that the shadows were deceiving me, but no, the pained look was in the dead face yet. But as I drew the lamp back, the light flashed upon something that sparkled and shimmered like a diamond. It was a diamond. In the folds of the winding sheet lay a gold sleeve-length, with a rose diamond sparkling in its centre. I examined it closely, and found upon the plain back of the stud the initials S.A. With a sudden impulse of suspicion, I drew back the linen sheet that shrouded the rigid form, and then the white shirt that lay so quietly over the still breast. The still breast! There was down the quiet bosom the mark of the sore and scalpel, a livid mark and a great wheel, where horrid stitches, coarsely and carelessly put in, made my heart sore as I looked. I had seen many post-mortems, and assisted at them, ay, and used sore and scalpel myself when a drunken doctor was too nervous to use them himself. But it was not upon the body of a friend whom I had loved as a father. What was it that made me suspect more of evil? It was that the poor dead chest lay lower than it ought to do, and that a large cloth had been laid over it to fill up the space. I felt like a man demented for the moment, and seizing the undertaker's screwdriver and screws, which lay on the mantelpiece, I hastily screwed down the coffin lid, and locking all the doors, went in search of Dr. Annan. I knew that his name was Samuel. He had been in too many police cases in which I had been engaged for me to make a mistake about that. What was I to do? It was too late to get out a search warrant, but on the track of Dr. Annan I must go. As I left the death-stricken premises, I could not help thinking of the once happy girl who used to make the cottage merry with her lively and loving ways, and of the old friend in whose society I took such infinite pleasure. One was now, in all probability, lying in the cold waters of the Yarra, and the other lay in his coffin, desecrated by a fiend in human form, and deserted by the very woman whom he had rescued from poverty and disgrace. It seemed hard to leave him there alone in the deserted home, but my errand was to avenge him. I wonder if, as we grow old, we grow more hardened and yet more impressible. I wonder if, as our years accumulate, we feel the griefs we would have felt in our youth less acutely, and yet resent them more. Even at that hour in the night a subdued light gleamed in Dr. Annan's window. I saw the great willow tree waving its drooping branches in the night breeze, and with the now dipping moon laying flickering light upon its tremulous leaves, and a sudden remembrance of Connell's suggestion to climb up to that window presented itself. Well, it was true. I was not very young. 
rheumatics and various troubles that remind us we have lost our youth afflicted me but if i knew my own capabilities i could climb that tree yet before ten minutes had elapsed i was on the top of the wall before ten more i was lodged in the branches of the willow at first i dreaded that a dog might be on the premises and betray my presence but after i had mounted to the level of annan's window i was satisfied that i had nothing to fear on that score i presume that at his elevation the doctor had no fear of a spile at all events his window was uncurtained and the venetian blinds drawn up not only that but it being a warm night or perhaps from some other reason the window sash was partially lifted my position was rather a precarious one but i managed to secure it while i looked into the room in which i was interested dr annan was lying back in an armchair with his eyes closed and an unmistakable snore emanating from his open mouth and dilated nostrils on the table at his hand was a bottle of brandy nearly empty and a glass with the remains of a cigar dropped into it it was impossible not to see that the man had been following his usual course of self-indulgence and left the remains of his orgy upon the table there was however the remains of something else upon the table that made my blood run cold thinking as i did of the silent tenant of the deserted cottage at a little distance it would ill become me to reveal to you the secrets of the dissecting room but there were red spots upon the cuff of the shirt that covered an unclean hand hanging over the back of a chair where the drunken scientist sat nothing could have kept me out of that room after what i had seen at the risk of my neck i raised the sash and crawled in then i had a regular inspection of the room my heart beat with the old professional ardour and i was a detective once more nor had i in this case much trouble to sheet home an illegal offence for on the stained cuff of dr annan's shirt-sleeve glittered the fellow of the diamond stud i had found in leland's coffin i took him by the shoulder and shook him soundly it was no easy matter to arouse him but when i had done so he staggered to his feet and casting one glance at the table confronted me who the deuce are you he said hoarsely for i dare say he was afraid of arousing the house and bringing more witnesses of his crime how did you get into my private apartments and what do you want i got him by the window i answered and i want you you impudent burglar he said i have a good mind to to make a slash through my breastbone otherwise my sternum with that discoloured sore i see on the table there and steal my heart out to examine it he looked stunned for an instant and seized the bottle as if to throw it at me but changing his mind he raised it to his lips and gurgled the contents down his throat now i'm ready for you he observed with a chuckle of enjoyment what do you want and who the blank are you i have answered both these questions before i replied but as you are in a state of muddle i will answer them again i am detective sinclair and i am here to arrest you for mutilating illegally and stealing portions of the body of george lelland show me your authority he said quickly and trying to fasten the cuff from which he had lost the stud of course if you have any right in such a matter i will not dispute it i held my detective card before him as i spoke that is my authority and now dr annan i'll trouble you to come to the police office without any fuss you are such a slippery eel and have so often wriggled out of trouble before that you may reasonably hope to do the same this time sinclair i remember you now cannot this be condoned was his next question 
I am open to any arrangement. Will you give me the mate of this stud? I asked. I see you have it in your sleeve. Or will you bribe me by offering the return of my dead friend's mutilated remains? By the heavens above us, if I didn't hope to give you ten years, I'd pitch you out of that window like a dead dog. He saw I was in earnest then, and grew slightly pale. I beg of you not to expose me to the people of the house, he pleaded. I will go quietly with you. I can get out of the house without disturbing anyone. All right, I said. Proceed me, and I will lock the room until the police take it in charge. Meanwhile, give me that sleeve link. What sleeve link? I looked at his cuff, and lo, the stud had disappeared like magic. What had he done with it? He had never moved from the spot where he had first stood. Had he swallowed the convicting stud, or flung it out of the open window by which I had entered? All at once I saw the gleam of a diamond at the bottom of the glass bottle, and pounced upon it with delight. "'Ah, doctor,' I said, "'the bottle has always been the ruin of you, and in this instance I sincerely pray it may complete its work. Go on.' He said no more, but went sulkily on before me down the staircase, casting, as we passed the bar door, a longing look in that direction. He made not a few appeals to me on the way to the police office, but, I need not say, in vain. Of course, this phase of affairs sadly interfered with poor Lelland's burial, and as some technicalities prevented Annan's case being dealt with until a day had intervened, I devoted the interim to tracing the woman Knox. Lelland had taken her, in almost a state of pauperism some two years before, on the recommendation of a Mrs. Gerald, who lived in the neighbourhood. To Mrs. Gerald I first applied. "'I know no more of the woman than you do, Mr. Sinclair,' she said in answer to my questions. "'She used to come washing to my place, and out of a charity I am now ashamed of, I recommended her to Mr. Lelland during Mr. Lelland's illness.' "'And why are you now ashamed of it?' I inquired. "'Because I have heard something of her doings lately. "'She has kept up an intimacy with a disreputable woman with whom she once lodged, "'and has been so free with money that I think she cannot honestly have acquired it. "'Where is this woman you speak of now?' "'The woman Knox lodged with. "'Strange to say, she and her husband shifted hurriedly last evening. "'Some of the children stated they were going up country. "'At all events, they went along the Camperdown Road with their few household goods in a dray.' for I saw them from my window as they went. You might have seen me flying along the Camperdown Road an hour after this conversation, on the back of the best horse I could obtain. I had little doubt but that Knox was with these friends of hers, and that all arrangements had been previously made between them. Doubtless they had a good start of me, but I knew the habits of the class well. Once fancy themselves secure, and they would in all probability camp and have a regular orgy. My predictions were fulfilled sooner than I anticipated. I had started at about nine o'clock. At twelve I reached the Bringwood Hotel, near the crossing at Monk's Creek. I alighted and entered the bar, where a great disturbance was going on, which disturbance was caused by a rowdy-looking man with a face inflamed by drink and passion, refusing to be ejected. "'Who is that chap?' I asked the landlord, when he had succeeded in turning his troublesome customer out. "'Is he a regular customer of yours?' "'Lord, bless you, no, sir. "'I'd never go for to treat a regular customer that way. "'They came here in a dray in the middle of the night "'and rousted me up for drink. "'They were free with their money and took a lot away with them. "'But all this morning he's been tormenting the very life out of me. "'They can't be far away, then. "'They're camped down about half a mile on the creek, my cowboy tells me. 
the man said, but that rowdy chap didn't seem disposed to give any information about it. And how many were on the dray? There were two women and two children and the man himself. This was my party, no doubt, but I did not hurry myself to pursue them. There was small probability, indeed, that they would make any further move while the man was in that condition, and my horse wanted a rest and a feed. In about an hour, however, I mounted again and rode toward the indicated spot near the creek. Some time before I reached it, I saw the tilted dray and heard the bitter crying of children. There was no other sound save the pleasant ones of running water and chattering birds and the rustling of summer-dried grasses, and I concluded that they were asleep and overcome by the liquor in which they had indulged, while probably neglecting the poor terrified children. On coming closer, I dismounted to examine such a scene of disorder as my pen cannot adequately describe. The tilted dray lay within a few yards of the creek, with both shafts broken, and a litter of boxes, wearing apparel, and household debris of all sorts scattered around it. At a little distance, where, against a log, a fire had evidently been made, there were plates and tin billies and various remains of food, and several broken and empty bottles. It was here that two poor little children were sitting on the grass, huddled together and crying bitterly. The eldest was about eight, and the other a couple of years younger. They ceased sobbing on my approach, and stared at me with wondering and terrified eyes, most pitiful to see. But there was only one other living being on the spot. Leaning against the log, in a helpless sort of way, was a woman. She sat upon the grass with her hands lying on her lap, and her back propped against the log. Her hair hung, tangled and disordered, on her neck, and some stray locks were now and then blown across her face, which was now pale and expressionless. Her eyes were fixed on the bank of the creek before her in a horrid stare, without calculation or meaning. This frightful-looking object was the woman I was in search of, Mrs. Knox. I spoke to her, but received no reply. I shook her, but she took no notice. Her form swayed to and fro under my touch as helplessly as a lay figure. The woman was evidently an idiot. What could have occasioned this state of affairs? Drawing the eldest child toward me, I tried to gain the information from her. "'Where is your father?' I asked. "'Gone away with the horse, that way,' said the child, and the child pointed to the right of their camp. "'And what has become of your mother?' "'I don't know.' and here the poor thing burst into a fresh flood of tears. "'Father beat her last night, and we haven't seen her since.' "'Where did you sleep?' "'In the dray, and when we came out, Mrs. Knox wouldn't speak to us. She won't speak to us at all.' I looked into the dray, but there was nothing living there. A sort of lair among the household rubbish showed where the children had slept. What had become of the woman?' What terrible tragedy had been enacted by this shady creek in the still hours of the night, during an orgy that might have been that of fiends? At this juncture, I saw a mounted policeman approaching. Having called at the hotel where I had rested, the landlord's information sent him on my track. This was a most fortunate circumstance for me, as it left me at liberty to return to my own case. My object in following this wretched woman was entirely frustrated by the condition in which I found her. She was quite incapable of giving evidence against Annan, whose accomplice she evidently was. I had hoped to terrify her into a confession, but I was disappointed. So, leaving her and the children to the constable in whose district they were, I rode back to town. 
it was dusk before i reached home and i had called on passing the police station to inquire if anything had been discovered of poor minnie leland there were no tidings of any kind and quite jaded i went home for a little rest and refreshment dr annan's case was to be brought before the court on the following day and i was very anxious about it leland's place containing the corpse was in charge of the police and as i passed it i saw the constable pacing up and down in front having partially refreshed myself i went up once more to leland's cottage as i approached the back door i struck a match for the purpose of lighting a candle in the kitchen and when i had done so i saw a sight that actually made me fancy for a few moments that i dreamt lying upon the threshold of the door with her arms under her head as it lay despairingly against the unfeeling wood was a female form i knew at a glance that it was minnie good heavens minnie i exclaimed is this really you she lifted herself up and looked at me with such a pitiful face as i never wish to again see on the face of youth yes i've come home she said and i want to get in you can't get in there my poor girl i replied get up and come home with me my housekeeper will take charge of you she obeyed listlessly yet with a trembling lip looking at the window of her father's room she was afraid to ask the question hovering on her lips and i thought it better she should not know so she came home with me and when she had been attended to by my old housekeeper she told me her story as soon as you had gone and left me with poor papa mrs knox came in and abused me she told me that i had killed my father and that she wondered how i dared stop there and look upon his dead face i don't remember what else she said but i knew she drove me mad and i ran down to throw myself in the yarra but when i got near the water i thought of poor papa and how he had loved me and how it would have grieved him to think his poor minnie should do so wrong and i sat down on the grass far away from the water so that i could not see it i think i must have fallen asleep but when i wakened i felt that i must go home no matter what mrs knox would say i thought i would tell you and that you would send her away and look after me i went in softly by the back gate and seeing a light in papa's window and shadows upon the blind i was afraid to go in but i peeped under where a bit of the window was open and oh mr sinclair what i saw it was some minutes before she was able to proceed so overcome was the child by the memory of the scene at last she collected herself and went on dr annan was giving mrs knox money and they were laughing about the way they had managed some signals in the windows it appeared that as soon as papa died mrs knox was to let dr annan know oh mr sinclair i can't tell you dr annan had a parcel in his hand and oh 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 i could understand it all there was no need for the miserable girl to tell me more my heart was jubilant my case was assured the trial came on the following day the court was crowded the strange circumstances had become known and was loudly commented on i need not enter into technical particulars minnie's evidence was conclusive annan was sentenced to five years imprisonment the woman knox is at the present moment an inmate of the lunatic asylum a hopeless idiot she scarcely ever speaks and when she does it is to mutter the word murder there is no doubt that the man murdered his wife on that night they camped by the creek but the deep water keeps its secret well 
and the body has not been discovered. The poor little ones were sent to the industrial schools, and some weeks after, a wandering horse near Camperdown caused inquiry and search on part of the police. It resulted in the discovery of the body of a man camped in a half-burned Miamia, with his limbs charred and his clothes destroyed. It was proved to be the man I had seen at the roadside hotel, who had accidentally set himself on fire while in a drunken sleep. Slayton is no longer in our force. His valuable services were dispensed with in consequence of his behaviour in the matter of Minnie Leland, as well as other misdemeanours proved against him. We do not miss him much. I have now only to tell you of my ward. I am glad to say that there is every prospect of her turning out a good and useful woman. I have placed her at a highly recommended school, and look forward to her making a respectable and sensible match, the terrible lesson of her father's death having thoroughly sobered her. I often look up at the window among the willows, and while admiring the swaying foliage, recall the events I have just related to you. I have not yet received the discharge I applied for, and mounting pressure is being used to induce me to remain in the force. After all, it is a pleasant thing to have one's services appreciated. I have been a long time in the force, so I don't know how it may end. End of story